You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 93. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Our guests on today's show are the co-founders of a group called Conceivable Future, Megan Coleman and Josephine Ferrarelli. Conceivable Future is a woman-led network of Americans working to bring awareness to the threat that climate change poses to reproductive justice. They organize house parties where open discussions are facilitated about the connections between climate change and reproductive rights, and use the momentum created through these discussions to leverage political will towards climate action. Now, this is a very personal topic for me. I have a three-year-old son, and I worry constantly about what the world will look like by the time he reaches adulthood. I think about things like, how many of the wildlife species that I love will be lost due to the effects of climate change? And what impact will climate change have on my favorite natural areas that I hope to share with my son when he's older? But I also think about larger concerns, like how will climate change affect the stability of the country that we live in, and how will our local community survive a climate catastrophe? Megan and Josephine are working to create safe spaces where people can share these types of concerns, and I'm extremely grateful for their focus on this topic. So let's jump into the conversation. My name is Megan Coleman. I am a, by training and trade, a sociologist. I've been a climate activist for a long time. Um, and uh, Josephine and I co-founded Conceivable Future uh, in November of 2014. Um, so, you know, my activism is informed by my background as a sociologist, as a teacher, as a writer, um, uh, as a social scientist. I uh, do a lot of work with, uh, with prison teaching and with other sort of social justice issues, um, and I'm involved in, in local politics here in Rhode Island. I, uh, I am a city councilor elect in my, uh, in my city of Pawtucket. So I, I bring a couple of different dimensions of political and social engagement to this work. And my name is Josephine Ferrarelli. I'm a writer and an illustrator and I teach yoga. Um, but I've been aware of climate change since I was probably eight or nine years old. And it's always been this sort of, uh, cloud, I would say over my life. I've always been trying to think of ways that I could, that I could address this problem. Some of those have been creative. Some of those have been, uh, political. And so as time's gone on and I've watched the situation grow worse and watched the movement not really, uh, grow in pace, uh, I felt, I felt more and more urgency. So for a while I was writing and editing climate coverage at occupy.com. I was, uh, I was present, but I wasn't in a leadership role at the occupation in Zuccotti Park in uh, 2011. And since then, I've been involved in various local fights against fossil fuel infrastructure and stuff like that. But um, but this organization that Megan and I founded together is maybe the most direct uh, line from where where climate lives in my heart to the work that I'm doing in the real world. Tell me a little bit more about this group that, that the two of you have created, Conceivable Future. What's sort of the story behind the, the creation of this, this group? So 
Megan and I were strangers when we, uh, we met at a house concert in Rhode Island in uh, November of 2014. A friend introduced us to each other as climate activists and our conversation kind of uh, abruptly veered in, in this direction that probably not a lot of people's conversations veer in within five minutes. But we started talking about how doing climate work, uh, you know, that it's, it's often really, really dry, really, uh, numbers and, and facts and figures in science and policy. Um, but our reasons for do it, for doing it are, are about the lives that we would like to live, about the threats that we see to those lives and to the lives of people around us that we care about, that we don't want to see suffer. And, and I think what happened was we were talking about uh, when we see good news in the paper, what's like the first thing that comes to mind. And for me, um, I, I told Megan the story about uh, looking at the paper, seeing um, Obama shaking hands with Xi Jinping in China and coming to some kind of early climate accord. And I, w- I was almost embarrassed to admit the first thing that popped into my head was, oh, maybe it would be safe to have a kid now. And <laughs> it had been like the day before we talked or something, or may- I, don't, I don't remember exactly. But, uh, and, and Megan really felt where I was coming from, that this threat to the possibility of having a kid to this, this future kid having a long, healthy life, um, that those threats were really real, even though we don't talk about them publicly. And when we address those threats privately, the only real viable solutions are like maybe put off having a kid, maybe don't have a kid, that kind of stuff. But having this conversation together, we were like, ooh, maybe there's political power here. Maybe instead of just just hand-wringing in private, we can, we can turn this into something. We can tell this story. We can find other women who have other stories that, that have to do with uh, – the intersection between reproduction and, and climate change. I think I said women, but actually we, we talk with all, all genders of people. It's, and it was, I mean, it was a fortuitous meeting. I had had some sort of reproductive justice or reproduction or action kind of percolating in the back of my head for a while. I didn't know, um, I didn't know what that meant or what that would look like. Um, but it, but it had been, with me for a while that there is a potentially politically powerful story to tell here that extends beyond the limits of, you know, my experience or, or even the experience among the people with whom we organize that, um, you know, that having children is, is a basic human right. It's something that's been politically charged and socially and politically manipulated on and off for millennia. Um, and that we are entering an age in which people's reproductive capacities are limited and contoured by um, by climate change and its effects, and so meeting with Josephine was um, was a, a nice a nice uh, spark in the powder keg, and then from there the organization developed pretty rapidly. Um, and and what we do in our organizing basis is uh, is to bring people together in spaces. We call them house parties, but they you know sometimes occur in houses and sometimes they occur in. Uh, museums and old movie theaters and and public spaces and things like that. Um, And we explore the idea of of, um, climate change as it relates to our own reproductive lives and decisions and feelings. And and so these house parties are really designed as a place where people can come together and explore, you know, like the terrain of their own reactions to the, you know, the, um, the worlds of, of parenthood or potential parenthood and the, and the social realities of climate change. And, 
you know, we go through them. We have, um, we, we do our best to create a space that's welcoming and invitational, um, you know, and safe and respectful. And, uh, and then part of what comes out of these conversations are, uh, we call them testimonies and they are people, individual people speaking their own truth about how climate change has affected their reproductive life, their reproductive thinking, their decision-making, their feelings about it. Um, those are recorded in audio formats, sometimes in video formats, sometimes in writing formats, most frequently in video formats. Um, and they're posted on our website as, you know, as ways of speaking truth to this structural power. And it's, you know, that the idea of a testimony is based on the fact that there is something inherently deep and meaningful about people sharing their own experiences. Um, and so that's what we do. What I'm wondering at this point is, where is the political power in this? And like, how are you using this to sort of exert that? Are you taking these these testimonials that are put on the website? I mean, how are you sort of leveraging that in order to have some impact on yeah. on the, the politics of this issue? a good question. There are, there are a couple of ways that we do that. Um, we have a sort of informal challenge whenever somebody testifies and it's, you know, send your testimony to your mother, your doctor and your faith leader or your, you know, state representative and, uh, uh, and your neighbor or something like that. A is a way to broaden, to broaden the issue and to broaden the conversation and to like put it out in public discourse that this is a thing. It's something that people struggle with. It's something that people, um, ponder. It's something that they grapple with and it's something that they make decisions based on. So to put it in public discourse is is sort of project number one. Um, Project number two is to bring people together to catalyze deeper climate action, deeper and more engaged and more sort of emotionally or if you want to call it spiritually grounded um, climate action that's based on on, uh, a clarity of conviction and a clarity of feeling. And so our house party participants um, connect with each other. They've been uh, uh, participating in, in, you know, an array of different climate actions. A lot of those are sort of locally based in their home communities. But part of what we're trying to do here is build an emotionally or um, tight climate community in which people trust each other, have each other's backs and are there, therefore able to um, imagine and carry out, you know, whatever climate activism speaks to them. When we formed our group, one of the things that we knew was important was to have was to have a big target, right? Because we've received a lot of information over the past 20 years about how our consumer choices, our personal choices are the climate action that we as individuals are, are allowed to make. And we've seen just about how effective that is. I mean, we just passed 400 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere, probably permanently, you know, in the past couple of days. Uh, So it's not enough. We know that. Uh, So we wanted to point people in the direction of a big lever, like a, a, a systemic change that would be big enough to really start to change things. And given that we are um, two women organizing with, uh, you know, a sort of non-existent budget, we, we needed to, we need to, to have something that we can, we can aim high for, but maybe, maybe we need to work with other groups to be effective on. So um, our target we, we selected was to end us fossil fuel subsidies and we picked that in part because the divestment movement was was at work. There's a lot of local struggles against actual pieces of infrastructure. but And we know that there's some groups doing excellent work on cap and trade, cap and dividend. Um, so th- there was this gap where we're not talking about the immense amount of money that these corporations are receiving in 
tax money on federal level, on state level, and then the sort of implicit subsidies of like um, externalized costs to health care to, you know, the groups that end up doing environmental remediation, all that kind of stuff. So right now we're basically just shouting about fossil fuel subsidies, right? But um, as time goes on, when we have when we have a little bit more um, more bandwidth, we're going to do a lot of research about specific subsidies and do some more specific targeted communications and and organizing around that. That goal is intended as direction, right? It's it's partly to to call attention to the fact that, as Josephine said, you you're not going to fix this problem by defeating only, you know, all of these various local targets. Um, and th- that's really important, right? We're, you know, fighting a bunch of fossil fuel infrastructure here in Rhode Island. Those those things are important. But having a demand that is, I guess I would say, morally clear, right? There's some moral clarity to this demand that we're, that we're making, um, however it is that we're approaching it. And the idea is that we're giving money, the United States government is giving away money to the industry that is literally killing us, um, and that that is unjust, that's immoral, and that jeopardizes the future of all Americans and most humans on the planet. You know, it strikes me that there is also sort of the direct benefit that's coming out of the work that you guys are doing and organizing these groups of people and organizing these house parties is direct and, and, and very personal to these people and just providing sort of a space for people to have this conversation that, like you said, is sort of taboo in, in, in our culture right now. Well, and I, yeah, I think there's, I think there's a tremendous social benefit, both in terms of climate and, and just in terms of like gender roles and the way that society is changing in talking about and denaturalizing, um, by which I mean, like just sort of examining what we take for granted ideas of, parenthood ideas of reproduction what it means to be an adult what it means to be a parent and i i yeah, as a sociologist i think like more critical space like this where we can you know ask ourselves what we've always taken for granted ask ourselves if that's what we really want what the restrictions on our on our decisions are and like where our hearts hurt about this is socially productive you know beyond the dimensions of climate particularly but i do think you're right you know the number one comment that we hear um, in like, you know, evaluations and feedback forms from conceivable future house party participants is like, whoa, I thought I was alone in this. I never knew that there was a whole cadre of people who are struggling with these same issues. It feels so nice to be in community, even as the questions remain really difficult. I can imagine on a personal level, how good that might feel. And I mean, I'm honest, honestly thinking here that like, I should help you guys organize a house party here in Boise because <laughs> it would be great to like have a group of people that 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 like I feel like I could openly talk about issues like this with um, because that's something that I that I don't have right now and and these are issues that I think about on a daily basis. We would love to help you have a Boise house party, so just let us know. Cool, yeah, we'll we'll definitely organize that. Um, and I guess and I guess that just to add, to add to that, the other thing I would say about the house parties and part of what makes them, um, I think, such powerful spaces is that people come into them with a variety of experiences, right? You have parents, you have non-parents, you have people who are undecided, you have people who are wistful, you have people kind of everywhere. It's not even a spectrum, right? It's like sort of a constellation of experiences with parenthood. We've had grandparents, right? We have a number of, um, we've had a number of babies attend, attend the house parties, which are kind of fun. Um, and, and have in general been really successful in creating a space in which people's stories are welcomed regardless of what that story is. 
Um, and, uh, and so that, that is, that's something to clarify because, you know, we've had some experience with press that, that conflates us with really, really problematic and, and racist and classist sort of population arguments. And I want to state clearly for the record that we are not a population organization and we, we, we condemn efforts to curtail other people's fertility because usually that is meant, you know, the fertility of poor people, of women of color, um, of people who aren't in the United States. And, uh, and so one of the things that we do really intentionally is make sure that everybody's story is honored um, and that there is space to share it no matter who you are or where you come from. You brought up this issue of population control, right? And I mean, for a lot of people, that's immediately where folks' minds go when you start talking about connections between reproductive decision-making uh, on a personal level and the connection between that and climate change. And I just want to sort of throw this out there and like see what your guys' response to this, because I, I recently read this this book um, that is about the, the climate change issue sort of broadly, which maybe you guys have heard of since you're both climate change activists called Reason in a Dark Time. And, uh, you know, one of the things in that book that, that really caught my attention is the author sort of lays out the three most influential occurrences that have had essentially made actually a measurable impact um, in decreasing uh, uh, carbon dioxide emissions. And, you know, what's striking about it is like none of these actions were actually intended to do that, right? So, I mean, one of them is, um, you know, the economic collapse of 2008. And another one is the collapse of the Soviet Union. But the third one is China's one-child policy, right? Right. Um, and so, like, that is a policy that for many, many reasons is is controversial and, and rightly so. And it's sort of beyond comprehension that like a country like the United States would, would impose such a rigid restriction on people. But at the same time, like that is something that I, that I think about and that I think is, 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 you know, a legitimate topic of discussion because we're dealing with a crisis situation. Right. You know? Well, so I would say a couple of things about that. Um, and one thing is that, uh, you know, because these subjects are relatively taboo, both both climate change and reproductive rights, in in polite conversation, right? We rarely talk about these things because we know that there are fiery opinions lying just under the surface. So, um, so people don't get a chance to think or talk about this stuff so much. Usually, when these issues come up side by side, it's always with this this population angle. I cannot tell you how many people have come out of the woodwork since. Um, since some of the larger pieces of press about us talking about their plans for reducing the global population and other scary ideas, um, it wouldn't be possible. You know, we're not, we're not situated to do anything like that. Why, why would we do that in the U S where the population is relatively stable? It's consumption, right? We have the highest per capita consumption rate of, of material goods, of CO2, of anywhere in the world. Maybe somewhere in Western Europe is competing with us for that title, but that's, that's what we're good at. So we don't have a so-called population problem in the U.S. We have a consumption problem. In other parts of the world where population may be growing, uh, per capita consumption is very, very low typically. Um, and so then we go ahead and demonize like rising standards of living, um, but all of this stuff is sort of moraling, moral back and forthing that doesn't doesn't relate to like real world efforts to to address the climate concern. No infant born today 
right, is responsible for the CO2 emissions that are currently, you know, landing on our heads. And whether or not they're responsible for a big chunk of them in the future has to do in large part with how you raise them, what kind of resources are allotted to its upbringing. So to the degree that we talk about population at all, we talk about it in a, in a, in a view of consumption in the U.S. Beyond the scope of the U.S., like, it doesn't matter what our opinion is. And, and frankly, a lot of those opinions are based on, I, I would argue, um, unexamined racism. I'm not trying to, trying to like set this on fire or anything, but, um, when in the West we're concerned about babies being born in, say, um, parts of Africa or in Asia, we're not looking at our own consumption. We're not saying like my, my consumption is through the roof. We're, we're, we're displacing, right? We're, we're looking to someone else to do our work for us. Um, so I, one of the reasons historically, I think that the environmental movement has not been able to make that many allies with social justice movements is because it has this sort of undergirding of, of white middle class, like uh, what we think of as common sense, which is that other people in other places should do what we think they should do for reasons we deem rational. Um, and, and frankly, you know, when, when you look at what, what reproductive justice is, what reproductive sovereignty is, what it means to really be empowered to make your own choices without oppression, without coercion, um, people make good decisions. You know, people are not trying to have babies they can't support. People aren't doing, um, stuff that's harmful to themselves. When people make decisions without access to, you know, family planning services, when they make decisions based on lack of, of medical care, or they don't make decisions because other people have coerced them into decisions or w- without um, appropriate social services, that kind of stuff, then you see, you know, outcomes that are harmful to those people. And that's, that's a bad situation. But uh, I don't know. That's that's a whole lot of information all over the place. I mean, Sorry. I, I, but I think Josephine is exactly right. And this is, again, something that we we hear a lot, but population corresponds to climate harm, like only to the degree that we consume resources and emit carbon. And so scapegoating, um, scapegoating people who have people, women, right, who have um, many children, whether that's by choice or, or because they lack access to family planning services is not is not constructive. Um, the other thing that I would add to this is that by looking at your own decision, right? Like how many children you have, that can be a very distracting, um, it can be a distracting occupation, right? It can be a a distracting undertaking because, because when we look so far into ourselves and at our own decision making, it can have the effect of distracting us from the other, like larger, more structural issues, right? So even if you're born in the United States today, by dint of having a bank account, right, you have a certain carbon footprint. By dint of riding a school bus, you have a certain carbon footprint. If you eat in the school's cafeteria, in your elementary school, you have a certain carbon footprint based on the way that our food is produced, right? So these things, by by sort of wringing our hands over our own decisions to the extent that we do, sometimes we can get distracted from the larger levers and the larger sort of structural issues around per capita consumption in the United States, um, particularly. I mean, we, to this, to, um, at this point, we've only organized in the United States because this is our home and because, um, you know, as a country, we, we are responsible for a lot of consumption. But the, I mean, the other, the other thing I just wanted to emphasize is that, is that looking at your own decisions 
um, to the extent that that we do can sometimes be depoliticizing because it discourages us from looking at the structures that shape our decisions, if that makes sense. That's kind of the heart of what I'm what I'm trying to get at here is that, I, I mean, I guess my next question is like, isn't there a way to control the size of the human population on this planet theoretically without infringing upon the reproductive rights of individuals right and yes. and that that would be sort of tied into what you what you guys were talking about um, about access to family planning services right okay. and i mean there there are ways to without imposing strict regulations that take away people's rights to control the size of the human population right i i just i don't think i don't think that's the framing um, that let me put it this way: that is not the framing that I find um, super constructive. And the reason for that is that when you, when when people have access to the family planning services that work for them, population is just a non-issue, right? And so we we at Conceivable Future, we're not interested in how many children anybody has. Um, you know, we're not interested in regulating that. We're not advocating any sort of regulation. The only thing that we advocate is self determination, right? Access to safe legal family planning services that is what we advocate because that is that is a framework of um you know so we're working for towards a framework of justice in which people's reproductive capacities are not curtailed or foreshortened or sort of forestalled by structural inequalities right we we want people to feel empowered to make their own decisions so we you know people we believe that that adults are to be trusted so all we have to do is make sure that our, our in, you know, environment and our society, uh, per, you know, permits or, or, or permits access to the family planning and resources that are necessary and that people choose to utilize. Josephine, did, did I leave something out of that? I think that's about right. I would just say that this idea that there's some like golden number of humans on Earth, I think is is not a super useful one. I mean, I know a lot of people um, in the environmental movement like to think about like what the carrying capacity and stuff is, but it's based on ideas that are pretty abstract to, to the human existence, right? It's based on whose standard of living at what time, in what way. I think anytime, anytime you go in the direction of, of thinking about like capping a, it, there is no viable strategy to do anything internationally on that scale. And if you could, right, it's like geoengineering. If it, if you could accomplish that, you could more easily accomplish it by, by addressing the problems that we, that we understand. We know what the solutions are, right? Like we know how to stop burning fossil fuels. We didn't burn fossil fuels for most of human history. We know how to live under those circumstances. The question is how bumpy is the transition going to be, right? How, how difficult um, and how much will people have to give up because people are super afraid of giving stuff up. Um, so it's a little bit, I, I think it's a misdirection um, to, to say, you know, how are we going to get from this many billion to this many pe billion people? Like it's not, it's not really our question to answer. And especially, you know, um, like grassroots activists, like what, what on earth uh, would, would we be doing about that? Nothing. It's not, it's not, it's not what we're, what we're trying to do. I, I, I feel like work is most productive when the targets are human scale, right? When it's like conversations that we can have when it's, when it's levers that we can reach, like what, what can we actually affect in this, in this window um, that we have? So 
So we've decided on some targets, we've seen groups decide on, on other targets, and there's a lot of good work happening, like positing some other, some other unattainable thing that's a dubious goal. I'm not, I'm not really interested in, in pursuing that, even really intellectually. I stay up a little late at night thinking about a lot of different things, you know? It really doesn't make sense, like you said, to, to be thinking about, like a lot of people in the movement sort of have done historically over the decades of like, you know, talking about what the carrying capacity of the earth is. I mean, nobody can reasonably answer that question. And I mean, sort of the point that I made, which I mean, you guys, I, I think, I think we were in total agreement there, is that by advocating for access to education and to family planning, that that is essentially the solution to the problem. In in the sense that people are able to live their human right of self determination, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's really as far as as I think anybody should reasonably go with it. That this is a human right, and it's one of the things we're fighting for is the ability to make reproductive choices free from massive, avoidable government sponsored harm. And so that in, that for us, because we're climate activists, we're talking about. Um, climate harm, right? But you could just as easily frame that as other infringements on civil rights, on human rights, like, um, you know, programs of coercive sterilization, things like that, that have a legacy in the environmental movement. That's stuff that we are also uh, trying to shed light on and move away from, right? We need, uh, we want, we want to defend the, the human life that, that is full and that has dignity, um, not, not a sort of marginal human life where, where rights are taken less seriously than, than quotas or than um, abstract notions, right? Yeah, and you know, there's a, there's a parallel to this that, um, that, that might be illustrative. So there's, um, there's a writer named Bridget Todd, and uh, she's a black woman, and she published an article in early July on, on Medium. And the title of that that article was bringing black children into the world seems pointless. And, and her basic argument, you know, I mean, like this was a, this was a personal essay based on her own experiences and feelings, but she said, you know, in an era of state violence against people of color, such as we've seen lately, you know, it feels like a pointless endeavor to bring a child into the world um, because the world is structurally aligned against, against that child. Um, you know, it's it's a beautiful and heartbreaking and incredibly poignant article. Um, and I was struck also by the synergies between that and some of the things that participants at our house parties say. Um, that that really what we're looking at is this the inhospitable and oppressive structure of a lot of of the way that our that our world and our political and economic system is set up that systematically destroys the chances for for children born into it to survive and thrive. Right. So we could, as Josephine said, we could just as easily be talking about um, forced sterilization, about uh, about state brutality, about any number of things um, where we focus on climate because we're climate activists. But this is not a new question. Speaking from personal experience, like that's what I think about on a daily basis. Right. I mean, I have a three year old son and, you know, I think every day about what the world's going to look like when he's my age. Um, and, you know, if it is even possible for him to, you know, have the same opportunities that 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 I've had, um, given what the world will look like in twenty or thirty years. I imagine that that these these uh, house parties and these discussions that that are facilitated by conceivable future. I mean, I imagine that's like one of the central focuses is like how do you wrap your mind around that um, as as a parent or as someone who's you know thinking about possibly you know bringing children into the world. 
I think that's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you have this experience. I imagine you might, that when you imagine the future, you're always sort of imagining two futures simultaneously, right? There's the one that's based on your own experience, what you hope for, for your kid, what their life would look like if, if they, you know, if they did what you hoped that they would do and they, you know, um, got an education, got a job, fell in love, all of that stuff. Um, and then there's this parallel track, which we almost never bring out into the light, but which is, which is ever present. If you think a lot about climate issues, um, which is, we really, we really don't know what systems are going to remain intact. We don't know what, you know, what the sky will look like when you open your door to go outside, you know, just, just simple stuff. Like, so, so I feel like a lot of us who've been aware of this issue for a long time, there's a kind of a double think or a double speak. Um, and one of the projects of, of the house parties and of coming together around this, and there's lots of different ways to come together with climate activists, but it's really, it's really to kind of bust open the taboo to sort of join, join those two futures to say, um, you know, this thing that I'm afraid of, this thing that is hard to talk about, it's real and it's true. You know, it, it's sad that we have to say that at this point, but, but our, even if we can't imagine the specifics, we know, we know what we're on track for more or less. We know what the, what the best case scenario, what the worst case scenarios look like. And that's, that's the only future that we're really heading towards. So how, how to have a personal future, how to have hopes and dreams in that context is really, uh, it's really long overdue. You know, it's really helpful for, I've found it really helpful. And on top of that, how to, how to grapple with the grief that inevitably comes when you face these issues head on, right? To, to take climate change seriously, right? To take the science seriously and to take the experience of the world in the last 20 years, just like looking at the intensification of storms, Rhode Island's in the middle of a really big drought right now, along with a lot of the country to take those things seriously means that you have to let it into your heart and that's going to make you sad. And that's okay. Um, it is not pleasant to be sad, but it's, but it's a part of absorbing the consequences of, of what this means. And it is, you know, healthier to be sad in community than it is to, to be sad in isolation. Um, and it's, you know, people tend to find more power in community than they do in isolation. And the, you know, that's also a big part of what we do is, you know, honoring, acknowledging, um, and, and giving gr that grief the space that it deserves. You explain that really well, Megan, by sort of explaining like how, you know, we know what the best case scenario or sort of outcome is as far as how the impact of climate change and we know what the worst case scenario is. You know, wh what I have difficulty wrapping my mind around is like, there's a huge difference between those, like a lot can happen within that realm of possibility. And there, there's so much that is that is unknown you know i mean despite how much we know about climate change and 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 what greenhouse gases are doing to um, the atmosphere and 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 the planet i mean there is a lot of gray area as far as trying to figure out what the world will actually look like in 20 or 30 years and my background is um as as a biologist right so i mean i tend to look at like the, the science behind what's going on, right? But then when I take a step back and start looking at like, okay, well, how is the science of what's going on with the climate, like, how is that going to impact our society, right? Yeah. And, and to me, like, I just have no idea how to even start wrapping my mind around that, you know? Yeah, and you know, there are people, people are thinking about that, but 
it's a, you know, it's a frightening thing in Rhode Island. All of a sudden we're um, required to carry hurricane insurance on our house, which wasn't a requirement when I bought my house a number of years ago. Um, but there, I know, and this is, this is one of the things, the central focus points of the idea of climate justice versus the idea of climate activism, right? So climate justice is, you know, is activism. It's, it's work towards a world in which the burdens of climate change are, you know, I I don't really want to say distributed fairly, but I guess that's what I mean, you know, in which there is recognition of historical inequalities, right, that climate change and its consequences typically impact poor people, they impact people of color, they impact people, excuse me, they impact women more. Um, You know, just in in Rhode Island right now, we're fighting a uh, liquefaction plant, liquefied natural gas, uh, in a very poor community of color that's right on the ocean, which is sort of a perfect storm of danger, contamination. And, uh, you know, and the activism around here is, I think, appropriately framing it as a case of environmental racism. You know, this, this, uh, the Fields Point, they, people say, you know, we're not a throwaway zone. Um, and so that kind of thinking, like, what, what does climate change mean for this types of inequalities that already exist in our society? That's the kind of thing that we need to take really seriously if we, you know, as we move forward and move through this period, this, you know, very, very long period of, of turmoil and change, and it's going to be rapid, and we're going to need to really keep the kind of world that we want to live in at the forefront of our minds, and we're going to have to demand hard things of ourselves in order to do this um, with, with even a modicum more justice than we're currently doing it. And we also depend, whether we, whether we say it explicitly or not, we always depend on other movements who are doing, who are laying the groundwork for a just transition um, by building these these networks of support, right? Um, there's a, a sociologist named Elaine Anderson who focus on, focuses on what she has a book called The Gendered Terrain of Disaster, which I think is a really evocative and beautiful title. Um, but one of her points is that, uh, and, and you see this borne out everywhere, that disasters don't, well, first of all, that a natural event is a natural event. It only becomes a disaster when you start involving people in it and people's, you know, systems and expectations. But once you have like a, a what's a so-called natural disaster, um, the impacts are uneven and they they play out in, in sort of typical ways. Naomi Klein says, you know, as it gets hotter, people get meaner. Um and and so so we see that when there's a natural disaster, not just that people who are vulnerable, and that can be all different kinds of vulnerable, are likelier to be more severely harmed, but also networks of people that give care, that give support, are going to be the backbone of of the the resilience effort long after she says, uh, you know, the men in trucks with bottled water you know, hit the road and, and leave the area. Uh, things like domestic uh, violence shelters and, you know, community centers, networks that already exist that build a resilient society are going to be taxed to their limit by by increasing need and increasing demand. Um, so basically anybody who's doing doing the good work of grassroots organizing, of knowing their neighbors, of, of, of building the kinds of communities that can withstand these events is doing, you know, the good work is doing the work, um, that we will all depend on whether we're involved in those movements today or not. So, um, I mean, the, the point being, I guess that allyship is of the utmost importance now and into the future. 
right at the beginning of this conversation, it, it was mentioned that th- this experience of catching a glimpse of a glimmer of hope in, in the climate movement, like seeing this soundbite of Obama discussing climate agreements with the Chinese president and, you know, the first thought being like, oh, maybe it's safe to have a kid, right? Um, I mean, where where are you guys at in this? I mean, y- you guys created this organization in part because you were struggling with these questions on a personal level, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, so I'll speak for myself. Um, every conceivable future house party brings something new to me. Um, I, it is, it's quite amazing because there is something that I learn or somebody, somebody hands me a new idea in a way that I didn't anticipate every single time. Right. I, um, I am pretty committed to not having, um, to not having a child physically. And there are a couple of reasons for that climate climate is pretty high on the list, but it's not the only one. Um, and one of the things that I really appreciate about conceivable future, about, um, my relationship with Josephine and our, and our, um, in our working relationship as well as our friendship is that conceivable future offers a space to talk about what parenthood and what engaging with kids might mean if you don't actually have a biological child, right? A child, the way that we think of, um, the way that we think of sort of traditional families in the United States, family structure is changing. And one of the, you know, one, one of the most valuable outcomes to me has been conversation in community about what it means to parent and, um, and how you how one can be involved in children's lives about where one can offer one skill and advice and support and resources. Um, so I, uh, I, you know, I don't know if and if and how I will be a parent, you know, there are all kinds of other things we as a sort of an aside. We also get people coming out of the woodwork advocating um, for various other things, including adoption. And that's um, that's a very politically fraught issue unto itself, right? Again, we as we are supportive of self determination, which means that if people feel that adoption is the right choice for them, then then that you know that is not something we're in a position to either um, support or or critique, right? We we support we support self determination, um, but you know we certainly as an organization don't take the position that like oh adoption is a is a superior you know decision. We don't take the position that anything is a superior decision. But for myself, this is complicated. Um, complicated terrain. I have a niece who is, uh, who I love beyond measure. And there's, you know, part of me that's always been really curious about, you know, what would it mean to have, to have a child biologically, right? To be pregnant and to, and to have, and have that experience. Um, Human beings change our minds all the time, right? So maybe in a year, if you ask me this question, I would have a different answer. Uh, But I, but I think the point is that I have learned something new every time I've about myself, every time I have come into a conceivable future com- conversation. And I always find it relevant, even though I've been learning these things for a year and a half now. I'm also, I'm also undecided. Right. Um, but it's, it's been interesting to organize from, from a position of not knowing from, from uncertainty and from vulnerability from saying like, I don't have the answer to this question is a really fruitful place to start in this, in this conversation. I've found, um, what it comes down to for me, uh, there, there's a couple things that I've heard over the years and this is sort of, I don't know, this is probably like a Hallmark card or whatever, but, um, I've heard it said like having a child is like, um, taking your heart and putting it outside your body. Um, and 
I take that a little bit farther in the climate context that it's like taking your heart out of your body and putting it 60 years into the future, you know? Um, so if I don't have a child, then I can be pretty assured. I'm, I live in the Midwest. I am, uh, you know, middle class. I am going to be relatively safe from some of the worst climate impacts in my lifetime. I probably, actually, who knows, but it seems less likely that I'll die from climate related events before my time. Right. Um, but you move that finish line, you know, to, to the end of my child's life. And honestly, like I have no idea. And that idea scares the crap out of me. So, um, it's something about, about taking, taking responsibility for some larger measure of the future saying that I decided for you future person, um, that this was worth, this is worth doing regardless of the outcome. And actually when I, when I lean in, in the direction of having a kid, I think of something that a woman testified, uh, through conceivable future. Um, she said, if I, if I have a child, I do so knowing that a human life can be any length. And what that, what that seems to mean is, you know, you, you don't have a kid based on some guarantee that they're going to, you know, experience this and this thing at this length of time, that maybe, maybe the love is enough. Maybe that, that, um, that gesture to the future is enough. Um, the other thing that, um, that we hear a lot is, you know, sometimes derisively and sometimes um, just thoughtfully is like, oh, you know, people have had children through all kinds of adverse historical periods, right? Including slavery, including various world wars, right? Including the Holocaust, Um, you know, to which we say absolutely. And also it is true that, you know, the birth rate dropped tremendously during the Great Depression. It's, It's dropped precipitously since the financial crisis of 2008. And this generation of people in the United States is in a really unique position because we have more autonomy over our reproductive capacities, perhaps than any any group of people on the history in the history of the of the planet. Um, and that doesn't, you know, that doesn't invalidate or dismiss the concerns. It's absolutely true that you know, human life is a risk, right? Having a child is a risk. Getting up in the morning is a risk. We don't know what's going to happen. You could get hit by a bus. You could, you know, contract some bizarre disease. You could, you could be caught in a crossfire, literal or figurative. Any number of things render life dangerous. Um, But what we're trying to say is that climate change is a unique kind of danger. This is like above and beyond the average perils of just like living, living your life. And that as well, you know, requires or demands acknowledgement, um, and is, is worth organizing around and is worth politicizing you. I I don't know. I would suspect that there are versions of these conversations that have been had throughout tumultuous and difficult times through, you know, in the course of human history, rarely have people been able to do anything about it to the extent that we are able to do something about it right now. Right. By which I mean that, um, you know, my uh, my great great grandparents who were Jewish could have, you know, maybe had a conversation about this um, during a particularly brutal period of of history in Western Europe. But, you know, whatever the outcome of their conversation is, they would not have had nearly as much autonomy over their over their body as I bodies as I have now. Um, 
the example of your your great grandparents uh, being Jewish, coming from Western Europe. It so happens that my great grandparents were also were Russian Jews who you know were uh, essentially fled the um, the pogroms uh, in the 1890s of you know the czarist government going from town to town and just killing all the Jewish people. Right, my great grandmother was three, and my great grandfather was 12 when they escaped that situation. Right, and I mean it's hard to imagine. Uh, a, a situation as threatening to life as something like that, right? However, they were able to escape. Like, they escaped, and they found a safe place on this planet. And, you know, there's this question of, like, this is a planetary crisis, and, like, are there going to be safe places on the planet? Like, you know, uh, I, I, I tend to believe that there are, but at the same time, I find myself wondering, you know, what skills should I be teaching my son as he grows up so that he is prepared for what is to come, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I think this question of safe space is really, it's interesting. Um, and I think it's a, it's, you know, like a pretty normal reaction, right? We all want to think of like, where will we be safe? Where can the people that we love be, be safe, right? Where will my niece be safe? Where can she grow up where there will be enough water or whatever it is? Um, but, but I also don't think that that solves the problem, right? There's going to be some places that are safer than others because there's going to be more water and less political instability and all that other kind of stuff. You know, I suspect that in Northeastern United States, we're going to be relatively insulated from the worst of this stuff for a while, but who knows, maybe I'm wrong. Um, but again, I don't like that, that kind of um, thinking to me is where we as humans need to push ourselves to I think, and this is the this is the environmental justice angle, right? To like try to create a world in which we are all safe, at least to a certain degree, right? In which the uh, kind of like the rewards or the resources of safety are distributed justly. Um, and you know, history would suggest, and your example of of the pogroms is a good one, right? History would suggest that um, when resources are scarce, that you know, again, people get people get meaner, and the better connected people get the resources and you know, that, that to me is not the kind of world that I want to be working towards. Well, and that those, um, any, any already schisms between two groups, a dominant group and, and an oppressed group, it's, you know, the oppressed group is going to get it. That's, we see civil wars that on the face of it have nothing to do with climate change. But when you turn up the dial, right, when you make a drought, you make, you make these bad conditions, that's when you see it. But actually, on a, on a local level, I'm curious to know what you've come up with, what you are going to teach your son about survival um, based on this big question mark. Yeah, you know, that's a good question. I mean, that's something I struggle with on a daily basis, you know? I mean, my mind, my mind goes to, like, survivalist classes, you know? Like, I want them to be able to survive out in the wilderness. I mean, I live in Idaho. Boise is just south of essentially the largest roadless area in the continental U.S. Um, you know, we've got vast stretches of land that are devoid of humans to an extent that very few other places, you know, in North America have. So, I mean, th th that's kind of where my mind goes, is right, of like making sure he's comfortable in, in the outdoors, essentially surviving separate from our societal system. It's probably not a bad idea anyway, like survivalist skills would be useful for everybody. They totally would be. And, and um, but I also think that, you know, this harkens to the question of community, right? We need community-based survivalist skills in addition to individual ones. You know, I grew up in the woods and, and um, have a fair number of survivalist skills myself that I, you know, enjoy for their own sake, very much independent of their political connotations. But 
Um, but those, those are the kinds of things that I think we need to think about how we transpose to group levels, right? Whether those are small towns, whether those are neighborhoods, whether those are cities, like how do we, how do we survive and thrive in the face of upheaval? And, you know, what skills are our communities lacking in order to do that well? And, you know, those are the questions that, um, that I find really fascinating and, and like a fruitful place for organizing. Josephine said something early about this earlier that, you know, the work of allyship, the work of community building, the work of community justice, um, like that is all stuff that builds climate resilience, you know, as well as all the other sort of constructive benefits that they offer. Yeah, I'm just going to wrap things up here by thanking you guys for this amazing uh, discussion. You know, this is a topic that is obviously very personal for me, and, and, and I really appreciate what you guys are doing, and I appreciate your openness in, in discussing these topics with me. So thank you. Thanks for, for taking the time for such a lively conversation, and uh, thanks to everybody for listening. Thank you. I would also add that if any listeners um, are interested in organizing house parties, that is something that we support. That's something that we help with. Um, so you can send us an email at info at conceivablefuture.org. So I-N-F-O at conceivablefuture.org. Our website is conceivablefuture.org. So take a look. Please be in touch. Um, you know, where we try our best to be really, really timely in our responses. So uh, so be in touch and, and we'd love to talk to whoever is interested in talking. Thanks again for coming on the show and talking about these issues with me. Totally. Thanks again. All right. That was our conversation with Megan Kalman and Josephine Ferrelli from Conceivable Future. This was one of the most personal discussions that we've had here on the podcast, both for myself and for our guests. And I am very grateful to, to Megan and Josephine for being so willing to talk openly with me about these issues. As I mentioned during the conversation, I, I really do want to host a conceivable future house party here in Boise. And uh, I, I will be chatting with Megan and Josephine in the coming months to, to work out the details of this. And I would encourage uh, any of our listeners uh, who enjoyed this discussion to reach out, uh, as Megan suggested, and, and learn what it would take to host a house party in your neighborhood. We'll include contact information and links on the show notes page for this episode for those of you who would like to learn more and potentially host your own house party. Um, those show notes where that information can be found are at wildlensinc.org slash EOC93. That's W-I-L-D-L-E-N-S-I-N-C dot org slash E-O-C 93. If you enjoyed this discussion, you can subscribe to our show via iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. And if you really want to help us out, you can leave us an honest rating and review of the show in the iTunes store. This really helps new people discover the show. Just search for Eyes on Conservation in the iTunes store. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. <laughs>